0: Stay on Stay on Rothbard.
1: <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho capitalist perspective. Tonight we're going to talk about another movie series. This one is going to be centered on The Starving Games. Well, actually, that's a. Uh, a comedic spoof on the hunger games which was a book series and a film series that was pretty popular and made jennifer lawrence a bit of a uh a-list star if you will and so this will be episode 87 and i spoiled the joke the other day by saying we were so 86 that we're 87 and that is the episode number actualanarchy.com slash 87 for show notes and more how are you doing, Robert?
0: Oh, doing great, guys. Just doing great. It's me and the dogs out here to record another episode. Feeling good. Feeling hot. I got all kinds of juice, juice stuff for this episode. More juice than I have content. So we'll see how this one goes.
1: All right. Yeah, this might be a short one. Now, before we got started, I was telling you in our pre-show content that I finally figured out how to get the air conditioner installed into my office. And I got to tell you, it's MacGyver meets projects without the duct tape. But I got it to work. Who the
0: work. hell is
1: Brojex is this really cheesy Canadian home improvement show where they go to these old cabins that were built like forty or fifty years ago that are all falling apart, and the guys go in and and juice them up, make them super nice, and they do it in a weekend. And oh wait, no, that's not it. That's a different show. Yeah, it's another weird cheesy Canadian show. It's two like redneck brothers in Canada who come up with crazy ideas and then build things out of junk. Like they made like a, uh, a floating performance stage for their band that had like a double decker top and they could have the drum kit on the top of this, uh, on the roof of this float and then a microphone and, and uh, guitar and everything. And then another pontoon set up where they could roast marshmallows in a fire pit on the water. Anyway, it's called Brojects. And so my wife and I, whenever we do like really half-assed projects around the house, just using scraps, we call it projecting. So that's what I did to get the air conditioner installed in my office.
0: Well, I'm fully in favor of any kind of juicing that goes on. So if you juiced up your your studio with some sort of redneck project enhancement of air conditioning, I'm all in favor, sir.
1: Well, thank you. I do appreciate that. This thing does get hot, like super hot. And the prior solution was a... um, one of those portable units that sits on the floor and has a an exhaust fan that or an exhaust tube that goes out in like a hole in the wall or a window, and that thing just couldn't keep up with this with the uh, fluctuations that this office is subjected to. But this other unit, pristine, just clean, Bob, worth every penny.
0: Your your office has a glory hole. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I, didn't, I wasn't quite following what you were saying.
1: It does now. It does now for for two okay. two hoses, one intake and one output.
0: Oh, deluxe.
1: It goes both ways. Speaking of going both ways, why don't we get into the Last Nighters portion of the show? Is that where we go both ways? It's the Normie-friendly, missionary style. Sure. Yeah, why not? Do missionaries go both ways? (laughs) Let's not go there, but let's get into the Last Nighters. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Hey, everyone. It's Daniel and Robert, The Last Nighters. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We're going to be talking about The Hunger Games. This is episode 30, and you can find the show notes and more at lastnighters.com slash 30. You can also find The Last Nighters on thelaunchpadmedia.com, and the is important for that URL. And The Launchpad Media has exclusive content on news, movies, culture, a bunch of other good stuff where they're always throwing new ideas in your direction. So do check that out. Uh, We're also part of the Libertarian Union, which you may have just heard our little uh, sh- uh, show plug about that. So do check that out. There's another dozen or so show providers listed on there. And the site just went through a revamp. So it's looking all super nice and groovy. And let's say hello to my co-host, Robert, before we get into the Google Descripciones.
0: Hey, everybody out there in the internet world. Back again, doing it again. Do why? Keep doing it. Yep, on the websites. <laughs> talking about Talking about movies on the shows with my buddy. Yeah, doing great, man. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, I'm doing well. And uh, why don't we just get into this thing, because that's what we're here for. And if you guys heard our last episode on Mission Impossible, uh, we know it was a little bit disjointed. We're going to try harder this time, and hopefully you enjoy it. So here we go. Even more disjointed. Even more, even more. But wait, there's more. The Google description, The Hunger Games, fantasy science fiction film, two hours and 22 minutes. In what was once North America, the capital of Panem, maintains its hold on its 12 districts by forcing them each to select a boy and a girl called Tributes to compete in a nationally televised event called the Hunger Games. Every citizen must watch as the youths fight to the death until only one remains. District 12 Tribute Katniss Everdeen has little to rely on other than her hunting skills and sharp instincts in an arena where she must weigh survival against love. And that is the description for the first film. What do you think, Robert?
0: You know, Pan Am... Not very progressive for a very, I don't know, it seems like a very radical culture. But they choose one boy and one girl. What about the other 70 genders? They just get off scot-free. I'd be like, sorry, bro, can't uh, can't, can't participate. I, I don't identify as either a boy or a girl. Well, there you go, man. That's but, how you get uh, out of it. It's what you should do. It's what everybody should do. No, that sounds about right. Um, for the whole series, it's the story of a revolution of... Uh, Of a brutal regime oppressing a whole bunch of people in the wake of a a civil war. And it's the story of, uh, yeah, of Katniss leading this revolt. Sort of leading. She's like a reluctant leader. And, um... Starts off as a tribute, one of these kids that has to murder other kids to survive, and then eventually becomes like the face of the resistance, only to be used and abused by both sides throughout the series. And uh, in the end, what really changes? I don't know, I think, the, I think it's Stephanie, is it Stephanie Meyer who wrote these books? It seems like a fairly, fairly, you know, nuanced and like woke, like uh, assessment of uh, revolutions.
1: Yeah, the author is Suzanne Collins. That's the name.
0: You there? I am, yes. The author is Suzanne Collins. Okay. Am I coming through okay? Or am I, like, digitizing out? No, you're great. Groovy. Okay, good. Great. You're digitizing out on my end, but that's okay. All right. I think it's
1: picking up what I'm putting down, so I think we're okay. All right. So, yeah, the book series by Suzanne Collins, and it became four films. Um, We're primarily just going to talk in generalities about this thing, but I do find it rather interesting that... You had a revolution in the United States, well, prior to becoming the United States, based on essentially what was a 3% tax, right? And now, in present day, it's like almost over 40% if you count not only federal, but your state and your local and, and property taxes and permits and licenses and fees and all those things. And you've got a bunch of socialists out there clamoring for more, you know, demanding more. They want free healthcare, free college, free everything. And it's just, it's really interesting to me that We had a revolution based on much smaller than that. And then it seems like in the Hunger Games, we're looking towards the future a bit more. And they're not even revolting when their kids are being taken from them and put into this murder arena, gladiatorial style combat.
0: Right. No, it's very much like an Overton window, pushing, you know, boiling frog situation where this could very well be our future. (laughs) Could very well be a situation where People are just like, yeah, well, you know, they only take the firstborn, so it's okay. we still got two other kids, it'll be fine, you know. And then we we would get upset if, you know, they change the rules on us and all of a sudden it's the first and the second child or something like that. And you're like, wait a minute, that's not right. Right, I mean... Because that's not what you said the first time, as opposed to, you know, objecting to it on moral grounds.
1: Right, and you could almost argue that many of the components of this already exist. Like when there was a draft, and now it's slightly different. Now there's a selective service, so you're sort of compelled to, quote-unquote, volunteer to be eligible to be drafted. But they're taking essentially kids, right, 18, 19, and sending them off to the other side of the world to go and be shot at and shoot at other people. So it's not even like, in a way, it seems worse than just the traditional ideas of slavery. And I know this might be controversial. The difference here is that not only are you being forced against your will to go do something, but you're being forced against your will to go and kill people, you know, not just like work on some land. So to me, that seems like a step up. Now, the, the length of the compulsion might be shorter in a uh, draft type scenario. But in this movie series, I mean, it's like they fight to the death, right? There's one but one survivor out of the 24 tributes that get into this entire
0: Game every year, right? Yeah, that is correct. Um, Yeah, it's, it's it's funny how the draft and modern day nation states, which is essentially the only religion that still requires human sacrifice, gets a pass. You know, slavery. We point out that that's abhorrent, and everybody's like, "Oh yeah, that's the worst thing ever," and blah blah blah. But modern day slavery, people don't even bat an eyeball to it. I mean, there is still modern day like sex slavery, and people will traffic in people and kids and whatnot and sell them into slavery. It happens all the time, and then people rightly look upon that as being horrific and immoral. But yet, it's still all part of this nebulous you know, social contract that just because you're born in some area, the group of thugs that go around extorting people have a right to force you to go kill and be killed because you're of a certain gender or, well, just because you live in a certain area, because you're a certain age. When- For some reason, as long as it's declared by a group of people that were voted upon or whatever then all of a sudden it's legitimate
1: well, and it's rarely declared to, to begin with uh but even beyond that they're they're clamoring for the gender equality in being eligible to be drafted so now they want to have women be able to be in the selective service like that's some kind of a uh, benefit <laughs> you know
0: well yeah and remember the uh the fear over the um the transgenders being not being allowed to be in the military because that was, you know, discriminatory when in fact, and I loved it. Even the responses by the, uh, the military folks were the best in my mind to that because they were like, yeah, the military discriminates on all kinds of shit. They discriminate on age, weight, vis- eyesight, you know, um, any kind of disabilities. <laughs> Uh, your, your physical, you know, fitness level, <clears throat> if you got, you know, a limp, if you got like, you know, stigmatism, all kinds of different reasons and things that they, they discriminate on. But, um, you know, people got up really upset when um, for some reason, you know, they transgender people wanted to uh, go kill and be killed people.
1: Right. And wasn't the whole premise of one of the characters in M.A.S.H., um, what was it, Corporal Klinger, is that the guy's name, where he would cross-dress mm-hmm. in an effort to be kicked out?
0: Yeah, he was trying to get the uh, dishonorable discharge or what was, I don't know if it was an honorable or dishonorable, but yeah, he wanted to be declared basically insane So would wear women's clothes openly on, on duty, you know.
1: Yeah, so it's a little bit ironic that it it comes full <clears throat> circle. And part of me wonders if that is, you know, I have this theory that culture, media, movies, television, et cetera, is where they sort of float ideas to make them more acceptable to the public in general and then... A few years later, after that's been sort of got a toehold, then it becomes a political movement. So you see things like, you know, MASH was in the 70s. And then you've got, not that it's really transgender, but you, get, you know, the, the common example is like Will and Grace and other things that make homosexual and, and homosexual rights be an issue, right? It starts building momentum. It, it gets into the consciousness of the average boobus americanus, like the voters,
0: yeah, so how can we turn this to our favor, Daniel? We need to get like ideas of liberty, freedom, ending the drug war, just all drugs legalized, get all that into the mainstream consciousness. And then in like, 10, 15, 20 years, when the kids who grew up with it come of age, and they're like, well, yeah, duh, that's how things should be.
1: Yeah, it's one of the reasons why The Wire yeah, was such a good series. And then Firefly, almost through no fault of the creator, was rather libertarian. <clears throat> but yeah, it would be great to see more of that kind of a thing. And I'll argue that The Hunger Games, in a way... Has some libertarian themes in it, which we can get into here. But one last Oh, really? Po- Do tell, Daniel. Well, one last point about this idea of the draft and conscription and taking these tributes and sending them off to go and kill each other. It's sort of a keystone to the whole idea of if the state can get away with this, then everything else almost pales in comparison, right? Like if they can tell you you have to serve them for a couple of years, go off in try to kill other tributes, then anything else that's even lesser than that is almost a given that they can do it, right? So this becomes an ability for the state to have an ever-increasing amount of power, near limitless power. And this is a point that a guy named Robert Higgs makes in a lecture that I'll post in the show notes below. He's got a chapter, I think, in Against Leviathan about it. But he basically argues that if, if they can get away with this and make this palatable and acceptable to the masses, then they can get away with anything else that they desire.
0: Especially in a world where information, you know, accurate information about war is readily available. I was listening to an interesting podcast, um, Hardcore History, Dan Carlin, recently. It was about, um, it was about Teddy Roosevelt and the, the Philippine War and the war with Spain around the turn of the century, the 1900s. And this is a time when Americans, and especially young boys, were so gung-ho... That they were doing whatever they could to get accepted into the war. Like they thought that you know, if they didn't get to fight, it was just gonna be the worst thing in the world. They were worried about the war being over before they really got before they saw combat. They were worried that you know they wouldn't be accepted, so they'd like put rocks in their pants so that they'd weigh enough. But you know, what else did they hear in the in the media in the media at the time? You're not exactly getting like on-the-spot, you know, video evidence of all the horrors of war. You got, like, fluff pieces written essentially by the Pentagon. Well, not the Pentagon at the time, but, you know, basically by the government and other pro-war-type people that are glossing over any kind of atrocities and really talking it up how how wonderful war is. And so then you got these kids that are just eating this crap up. You know, it's you're being told that this is how you become a man, this is what men do. And that, you know, it, it takes advantage of that instinct of men to protect, you know, their families and they project it out and they pervert it and they twist it and they use it to commit horrific atrocities. But it's harder to do that in an age where you can just look up on the internet, you know, what war is like. Or all these movies that are fairly realistic, I mean, not entirely, but fairly realistic. But there's all kinds of media and people talking about war and the horrificness of it. And yet, people are still perfectly fine with it. I mean, where where are all the anti-war rallies these days? They don't exist. Where are the protests? Where Where's the outrage over the war? It's, it seems like it's just been this dull drumbeat in the back of people's minds that you just kind of tune out because it's ever-present. And you can't get outraged every day about the same old same old thing.
1: Well, fortunately for them, there's a new outrage of the week, at least, it seems, um, with anything that Trump has either said or tweeted or didn't bow and scrape to, you know, the queen or he sat with Putin and said nice things. It's like every, every week there's some new outrage to be upset about, but it's always something rather stupid and ridiculous, whereas there are horrible atrocities happening all over the world that tend to get ignored. And those are all related to, you know, the warfare state. And then we've got, what, the the highest prison population in the world. We've got a guy like Ross Ulbricht in prison for life for providing a marketplace for people. Um, I mean, there's plenty of things that ought outrage people, but they get glossed over and people get outraged over stupid stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it seems to be much easier to get outraged over words or I don't even know what. It seems to be just just, just words. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> than it is to actually get outraged over actions.
1: But back to your point about you know televising war or showing what war is, I think that that was a lot of why the Vietnam War was so unpopular was because there was a fair amount of reporting going on and embedded uh, reporters and photographers and film coming back, showing how horrible it was and the atrocities and the violence. And then it sort of got sanitized, I think, during the first Gulf War in the 1990s, where it almost looked like a video game. You know, you had the the smart quote-unquote, smart bombs that would still miss their target and blow up hospitals. Um, but it, it looked like, you know, green screen-type Hong-style graphics because it was like the night bombing raid of Baghdad. Do you remember that at all? I know I know we were pretty young when that happened.
0: But oh, I remember exactly. Yeah, I remember watching that. That was the, the movie that played on CNN for about a month, and then it was over. Right. And, yeah. you know, uh, Carlin makes this point also in that podcast I was talking about because the war with the Spanish – Over essentially over Cuba, remember the whole, remember the Maine and all that business, was super short. And the United States just obliterated them. I mean, the, the Spanish Armada was not what it once was. And the modern U.S. Navy just obliterated them. I mean, talking like battles where like one U.S. soldier would die because he like stumbled and fell. But everybody, you know, then you're sinking like every, every Spanish ship and just like hundreds of thousands of them are dying. Then you go to a war like the Philippines and it's a big slog and like you're butchering entire villages and then you're getting butchered because it's a guerrilla war. It's a totally different type of engagement. And then that's unpopular just like in um, Vietnam, which was a slog, which was just this, you know, you're fighting a guerrilla war. It's an occupational war, just like the Philippines was. You're fighting somebody on their land. You're invading their land and they're, they, they're faced with a, you know, a superior force. So what do you do? Sun Tzu says you harry them, you harass them, you destroy their supply lines, you fight a guerrilla war. That's what they did. And those kind of wars are very unpopular. But the fact that even short, sweet winning wars are popular is really kind of disgusting from my standpoint. I mean, I can't imagine anybody really thought that the nation of Iraq had to be destroyed in the first Gulf War, but it did. And it, it happened in about 30 days.
1: Yeah, and yet still left the supposed evil dictator in power for another 15 years or so. Yeah. But anyway, this sort of ties back to the movie a little bit, because how they're televising the tributes trying to kill each other, we see this in drafted and and even some volunteer military things happening around the world, and seeing that get reported. And that fills your nightly news. So there are a lot of parallels, I think.
0: Indeed. Indeed there are, sir. Um what did you think about this series as a whole in terms of the way it starts and the way it ends, especially? Do you think that the author intended it to be a commentary on the nature of cyclical revolutions? I don't
1: know. I sort of took this at more of a face value thing. Like, this is this is what I read after I read Harry Potter. So this is before I got into, like, Austrian economics and history and, and other things like that. I would read this kind of pop culture youth, teen beat type <laughs> uh, stories. And, Tiger Beat. And I, I found Sweet. that this was very similar to the Harry Potter series in that it was meant for keeping entertaining, keeping the story going, becoming a, a property, you know, becoming a franchise, becoming a film series. And so it had to mix in a bunch of action. And it's like they, they took all these components and needed to craft them into something that the masses
0: desired. So again, glad to ter- So you're not giving the author credit for having, like, a message that she thought was important.
1: Well, I'm, maybe she did. I, it, it's perhaps lost on me. What's your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I thought it was really good. I thought that was the best part of the whole series, is the fact that the rebels take over, and then they immediately want to punish those that were in power before, all the brutal people. As would be just, I think, all these people that brutally murdered all these people. You probably want to punish them somehow, whether through ostracization or whatever you decide. But then the rebels immediately start clamping down, and then they commit atrocities, and then they sow resentment and anger. And then they just wanted power in the first place, and then the cycle continues. And it's really just two groups disagreeing on how to rule people. It's like, no, 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 you're doing it wrong. You're killing too many people. You need to rule so that you don't have to kill too many people. Then they get in power, and they're like, oh, wait a minute. Look at all these people that need to get killed. We need to kill these people. And then the people who are friends with or love the people that got killed are like, girl, I don't like these people. We We need to revolt. And it's just over and over and over again. And it's like nobody ever recognizes why the ring of power shouldn't be held by anybody.
1: That's a powerful message, Robert. And since I haven't watched the movie series in a little while here, I think it's sort of lost on me when you're talking about the rebels taking over. Isn't that what happened, like, at the very end? And then they're going to execute Snow, and then Katniss doesn't kill him and ends up killing the the new leader, who was from District 13, who everyone had told the—how do I say this? The propaganda was that District 13 didn't exist any longer.
0: Yeah, that's what happens. She ends up killing the leader of 13, recognizing that she was just going to be another tyrant, like Snow. And eventually she, you know, just taps out. I can't deal with this anymore. And, you know, fair enough. But I I still found that message to come through because she recognized that the District 13 lady was just disagreeing with Snow on how to rule people. Or she wanted to be in power as opposed to having Snow in power. It's just different groups of people saying, no, I'm going to exert my will and authority over other people. No, I'm going to do it. No, I'm going to do it. It's just an endless cycle. Yeah, and slightly different how long how long flavor. is this going to go on before humans recognize that there shouldn't be anybody in the chair
1: yeah hopefully that day is coming hopefully hopefully the new the new gutenberg press of which we are a part the internet podcasting and other things like that getting the message out self organization is There's a conversation
0: powerful. between it in a second movie the very beginning of the second movie between Katniss and Snow and they talk about you know how the giving of the they are going to eat the berries at the end of the first movie because they didn't want to they didn't want to live without each other they were so in love with each other and so then you know the game says well there has to be a winner so okay they, both of these people win and then at the beginning of the second movie Snow goes to talk to Katniss and he's like you know that act of the berries could have been seen as an act of defiance and that single act of defiance could bring this whole system crashing down and Katniss is like well, why is it so fragile that one single act of defiance could bring it crashing down And how does Snow not recognize that, you know, why that is? Because of the horrific, brutal repression of the people, forcing children to fight in gladiatorial games, robbing people of their wealth so that the capital thrives in this ridiculous opulence. I mean, White should know, I mean, the character isn't stupid, right? He should know that it's their own actions, which breeds nothing but resentment, which would make a single act of resistance bring on a war. You know what I'm talking about, Daniel? You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I feel like this is one of those things that when, when it's you, the perspective is difficult to see, whereas if, if it was somebody else viewing it from a from a different angle, they could see the situation. It's sort of like when a friend comes to you for advice, like relationship advice. Like they're so involved they don't see the problem, but some neutral observer can can easily pinpoint it. So maybe that's what he's, he's running into. Because he has that power and he wants to maintain it. And the only tool that he really has at his disposal is, is violence, right? He's trying to keep people in line and in fear. He's using fear as the motivator.
0: Right. I mean, I suppose in order to maintain your legitimacy, quote-unquote, you have to enforce the laws that you decree. I mean, you can't just have, like, suggestions. But it sure seems like... I mean, I I understand that the um, the opulence of the capital is only maintained by the constant shipments from all the different districts. But and I, I assume any kind of austerity wouldn't be very popular in the capital, and maybe then he would have his own people tearing him, to destroying him. I don't know. But it seems like the situation he's in is is untenable. So the only the best solution would have been to give you know stop stealing from the district so much, stop killing their kids so much. Stop brutally assaulting them so much. I mean, they send in, like, these peacekeeper forces who are just, like, these god figures, and they just assault anybody they want and kill and murder anybody they want. And if you dare fight back, they just murder you. You think you might resent those people at all? Yeah, maybe just a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's... Every... every, There's a... There's a a term in the military, I forget what it's called, but we've talked about it in the past, where, you know, you destroy, like, a village, or you destroy, like, a, a hut. You burn a hut down, and for every guy you kill you create 10 more enemies. And that's what happens when you treat people poorly. When you treat people horrifically and you mistreat them and you beat them and you attack them and you kill their friends, all you do is you breed resentment and you create enemies. By its very definition, that's what you do. So how, how can people in these positions of power not understand that? It seems, it seems really, really academic to me.
1: Yeah, and that was, I believe, the Stanley McChrystal concept where if you kill one, you end up making 10, 10 new belligerents. And so he wanted to implement his coin strategy, counter counterintelligence, something or other. I forget exactly. Yeah, that was the was. Uh,
0: the Afghanistan war guy. But I, it, that goes back farther than that. I mean, that that goes back at least to the Vietnam War when they were doing this kind of stuff. But yeah, it's the same same principle.
1: Yeah, you'd think that they would recognize that hey, we're, we're upsetting a lot of people here, and eventually they're going to resist in a in a more effective way, right? You can only push some some people so far. And like how we opened this show. The tax question and the amount of influence the government had in people's lives back in uh, 1776, uh, they had a much lower boiling point at the time than they seem to now, and especially in this film series.
0: But even the the, the founding fathers of 1776, even they weren't, you know, they were upset about taxation without representation. They're even okay with taxation. They're like, yeah, okay, steal from us, but we want some sort of home rule. Like, we want people that look like us to be ruling over us. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was a step in the right direction. But, you know, it's not like these people were anarchists or anything.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. They wanted their rulers to be more similar and closer. Right. And then to the point that you made earlier, I just wanted to mention that, you know, any government law that has any significance or relevance is only there preventing people from doing what they would have otherwise voluntarily chosen, right? Otherwise, the law is pointless. Like, if it's something people are going to do, you don't need a law telling them that's what they need to do. So at best, they're irrelevant, and at worst, well, there's a body count of over 400 million people in the 20th century alone as a result of democide or war. So that's a pretty significant unbalanced equation there, if you, if you follow what I'm saying here. I think I know what you're talking about,
0: Daniel. I think you're trying to say that state weapons is bad. It's bad. It's, it's, I, I, it's kind of bad, MK. Okay? I, t- I tend to agree with you. All
1: right, let's talk a little bit about District 13, because in a way, they sort of went galt, And didn't they have a nuke? And wasn't that what was one of the things preventing the Capitol from attacking them? And so the Capitol's response was to almost wipe them from memory, wipe them from existence, sort of deny that they uh, still existed at all or just say that they had been blown up.
0: Yeah, there was propaganda out that that the, the District 13 no longer existed, that there was a war and yeah, they totally annihilated them. But yeah, in your reality, they I believe if they didn't have a nuke and they might have. and That's an interesting point. If they did have a nuke and I I can't quite specifically remember whether they did or not, but well, let's just say they did. You know, in in modern world, you know, a nuclear weapon is a deterrent against attack, right? I mean, nobody wants to start a nuclear war because, you know, politicians could actually die in a nuclear war. So, I mean, there's a reason why what no nuclear armed country has gone to war with another nuclear armed country since nukes have been around,
1: yeah, other than by proxy or extension, you know, sort of an arms link deal where it was through a third party right. yeah, country. like
0: we've sort of been at war with China and sort of been at war with Russia, like on this like a on like a little muddy you know country that neither of them are actually supposed to be in or support. but yeah, it's um it's kind of an incentive for everybody to get nukes, isn't it? You want a weapon that you can actually hit the people that would be wanting to kill you. And we're talking about, you know, the politicians, like the people of the countries, they don't care. They're just trying to live their lives. And yeah, some of them might fall for the propaganda of, you know, these people in X country are all evil or whatever. And some of them might even sign up to go fight in some war that goes kill the people because, you know, propaganda is a powerful tool. Cognitive dissonance is a powerful tool. You know, pride, all these things are really Sense of you know protection. All these things are really powerful, exploitable you know characteristics of human beings.
1: Yeah, so. it's interesting that you mentioned the the propaganda because there certainly was plenty of it in in this film, and they use it actually as a tool to fight back against the capital. Where they actually have Katniss starring in these motivational little bits where they pretend like she's fighting in in battle and and doing something amazing to co- sort of rally the masses to keep their spirits up and yeah these are like yeah, she absolutely fake serves situations. as like a, this
0: figurehead as the mockingjay figurehead and kind of like the the captain america character in marvel comics or i'm sure there have been others but that's the one that springs to mind of just like this yeah pure, pure propaganda character that is worth far more to you as uh inspiration than anything else
1: right yeah because they were also reluctant to actually put her into actual battle because she was worth more to them as like you said this uh this lightning rod or this inspirational figure. So they put her into fake battle situations and tried to build her up and make her look like she's done something amazing when really she hadn't done a whole lot. And in many ways, she was a bit like Harry Potter, where Harry Potter just really doesn't do anything either. Sort of lucks into some things. Uh, There is one scene where she does demonstrate like half-decent bow staff skills. I mean, um, archery skills. Remember in the, the training center where she's trying to get their attention and prove to them that she's like... Got some some level of skill and she shoots an arrow through an apple, I think, near Snow or Snow's holding it or something like that. And that's really about the extent sure. of her abilities actually being put on display in pretty much this entire movie series.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that how much, how often, or how, that the fact that they did use Katniss as an information weapon. Because information, like an information war, is almost as important as like the real war. If you're fighting a war, like Goebbels understood this Massively. You know, the value of propaganda to keep morale up at home and with the troops and to demoralize your enemy is so critical to actually winning if you want to win. I mean, back in the day, back when, you know, um, when uh, people fought like hand to hand, like with knights and swordsmen and axes and clubs you know there's something like i forget what the actual number is but it's a ridiculously high number it's almost like 90% of casualties happen when one of the sides that are fighting you know you're fighting like shoulder to shoulder against men other men shoulder to shoulder and you got guys behind you that are going to take over for you when you get too tired because you're basically just trying to stab and hack and chop and you know like 10% of casualties happen when you're actually facing the enemy and the other 90% happen when you when one side breaks morale and just starts running away. And they're like, we're, we're going to lose, we're going to die. And that's when, like, the cavalry come in and start putting spears through people's backs as they're running away. Yeah, that seems like... So just the value of morale is huge. conduct there. <laughs> yeah, there was a referee on the battlefield who would detect, give the yellow card. Yeah. It's true.
1: That, that is surprising. And I wonder um, if that's one of the reasons why... I mean, you see it in the movies all the time, where they say, hold, hold, hold your formation. You know, don't, don't break the line you see it in Braveheart and you see it in like pretty much any old style military movie like this. Uh, I wonder if that's because of this phenomenon.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you didn't want, you didn't want people breaking through your lines, you know, to get to the, to people, you know, being able to stab them in the back or to get to your supplies or any other number of bad things that could happen. But also, yeah, when somebody broke through, it was a huge morale killer because then, you know, what do you do? You either try and beat that, beat the people back to reform the line, or you form up into, you know, like a new line, two new lines, you know, like the two different separated forces. And that's what people were always trying to do back then. You're trying to divide and conquer. You're trying to divide the two forces, and then you'd surround them, and then you'd slowly just crunch them. That sounds like politics. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much like politics. (laughs) I mean, I mean, the culture... And today, I mean, in the United States, is so divided where you go half the country calling the other country, you know, half the country like Nazis. It's, you know, kind of divided.
1: Yeah, the irony of that, of course, is that the ones usually calling people Nazis are the ones who advocate for Nazi tactics, right? Silencing speech, having state control of industry, you know. Uh, well, yeah,
0: they're the actual socialists.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. And and it's just, it's bizarre that they don't recognize that the things that they're wanting are the things that the Nazis wanted. Like, they literally want almost exactly the platform that Hitler had, minus the race component. Well, actually, I will take that back. They actually want the race component in there, but just in
0: the other direction. Yeah, man, I, it's, it's, it's really a weird time to be alive. It is. First of all, it's just incredibly lazy. I mean, there was a—I don't know if you've seen these videos, but there's a—down in Australia— like uh, Stefan Molyneux and Lauren Southern gave a, a talk where the police actually charged them $68,000 to keep the peace. It's kind of strange that you would have an event and people would attack it and the cops come and then they blame the victims. Like here, you got attacked by terrorists. That'll be uh $68,000. <laughs> but anyway, um, the protesters were just calling everybody a Nazi Everybody on the other side, anybody that even wanted to go in and just listen to the talk. I mean, they didn't know these people. you don't know what they're going for, what the reason of what they're going for, wh- if they agree with everything the person says or if these are actual Nazis or even if Stefan Molyneux is a Nazi, which I to call an anarchist, <laughs> to call like this libertarian philosopher, anarcho-capitalist dude, a Nazi. He's about as far away from a Nazi as it gets, but it it just goes to show you that people don't understand what was wrong about the Nazis. Uh, Larkin Rose did a great video on YouTube. Um, I I think it's, I don't know exactly what it's called, but it's something like, what did the Nazis do wrong? Something like that. And it's like you said, they advocate for almost all the things that Hitler does or Hitler did. But what, you know, what the Nazis did wrong was that, you know, they had this belief in authority and if somebody ordered you to do this immoral thing, they went and did it just like soldiers do today. And that's, and that's kind of Larkin's point. It's, it's not, these things always go bad is this point. It's always, when you believe in authority and you believe that someone can tell you to do a thing, that it goes against your conscience, it's not going to end well. And there's going to be this continual human meat grinder where it seems like we're never going to learn this lesson and it's really frustrating. And I can't, I'm trying to think of a way to bring this back to the movie, but I can't. <laughs> Other than the fact that the revolution of Pan Am is just this endless meat grinder.
1: Yeah. Now there the the, the anti-Trump um, people, are they borrowing the resistance from this movie series, or is it more from the SJW Wars? I mean, Star Wars.
0: The anti-Trump people are thinking that they are like the rebels? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, well, the Resistance, because it literally is called the Resistance now in the new series, correct? In the, in the new
0: trilogy? Yes, they call themselves the Resistance for some reason, even though it doesn't make any sense because they totally destroyed the Empire in the, at the end of Return of the Jedi. And then what happened that now they're on the run again from this new Empire people?
1: Slowly, very slowly
0: on the run. Yes, mercurially running away from the Empire.
1: All right. Well, I want to ask you about the... um, You talked about the tactics of war and most of the injuries happen when people are trying to escape and their morale is broken uh, and they're getting shot or stabbed in the back. Now, in gentlemanly combat, shooting someone in the back would not be, you know, the normal standard of combat, right? That would be... A faux pas, if you will. So like I a, would agree with that. Like a war crime. It's a dick move? Yeah, it's a dick move. So it's a bit of a war crime. What do you think about at the end of the fourth movie where these aid packets are parachuted down into a crowd and it's marked as medical supplies and they're bombs? And that was like a last-ditch yeah. effort where it was supposed to... It was a false flag, right? People were supposed to think that it was Snow doing this because he was on the run, Right. They were closing in on him, but it was revealed there it was actually the, the attacking force, right? It was the District 13 commander trying to make Snow appear, like, ultimately evil, very
0: Hitler-like with this move. Right. Yeah, it's more information war. And I think that Katniss recognized it, right? I, don't, I forget when she exactly, she figured it out, but one of those bombs exploded and killed her sister. And maybe that was what did it, that turned her over. I don't know, but... Yeah, I mean, this is a common tactic in modern warfare, and it's pretty much as old as humans. Where you're constantly trying to demonize your enemy and make them out to be the other or the just a horrific villain, and it makes them a lot easier to kill. Because if you recognize that that person over there is a human being, with wants and desires and loves, and you know has people that love them, and it's a it's a whole lot different. It's more difficult. That's why they put helmets on the bad guys in movies and TVs because you don't actually want to be able to see their eyeballs and that they have faces and their people when they're getting slaughtered and massed by the heroes. It makes it a lot easier to just have them be faceless goons or just, quote, bad guys. It's right. the psychology of war, man.
1: And so doing this, this dick move by exploding the medical supplies on these people is a false flag to make snow appear to be the ultimate evil. Um, but, you know, tying it back to your comment about the Maine, wasn't the Maine also a... False flag, like, weren't there multiple false flag events? The Gulf of Tonkin, um, Pearl Harbor had some foreshadowing, some forewarning. It was sort of, like, known by higher-ups that that was impending, and they knew where and and roughly when that attack was going to happen. And they still allowed it. Sure. The Ragstag. Mm -hmm. And so they're willing to kill their own people, many of them, in order to gin up the rest of them to support more bloodshed.
0: Yeah. And it's usually to make money, usually. I mean, these people, like we've said in the past, I mean, politicians are there for four to eight years, generally speaking. I mean, some, like, keep winning elections and come back for life, like Strom Thurmond or whoever. But they're basically there to get in, pitch, and get out. And, you know, the best way to do that is to make a bunch of money for your buddies in, you know, private industry. And usually, you know, that's the war profiteers, the defense contractors that make a ton of cash and they need to have a war to fight. So, you know, when you don't have an enemy, you make one. And if you don't have a war, you know, you gin one up, you get everybody outraged, you blow up some kids. I mean, we, we talked, we mentioned this in the past, uh, the Operation Northwoods, which got vetoed by Kennedy, but went up to McNamara where they were the plan. This has all been declassified and this is just one of their plans. This is just the one that's gotten declassified. Who knows how many of these they've actually carried out. But the plan was to like blow up buses full of kids and to blow up airplanes and blame it on Castro and start a war. This is what these people do. And they, you know, they, they want something. This is something they want. And these people are very Machiavellian about it. They'll just, you know, the ends justify the means. Hey, if we got to kill a couple of kids to get what we want, to maybe fight, you know, the evil Russian menace or whatever it is that they wanted, you know, to get, to get the, the missiles out of Cuba or whatever justification it is, or stop the flow of communism into Vietnam, to stop the dominoes from crashing all throughout Southeast Asia, we're going to go and murder and slaughter all these people. Because that's always a good idea and it doesn't create any resentment. I don't know what you're talking about, Dan. Bunch of propaganda where you say that killing people and their friends and blowing up weddings and butchering old people and women and children and smashing babies' heads against the wall, you know, gets anybody upset because it doesn't. So I, 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 and this is the nature of authority. I, it's just this seems to be the inevitable outcome. The natural result, and, and, you know, people can blame this, like, on capitalism, when this is, like, not capitalistic at all. But anytime anybody's making money, you know, they call it capitalism, which just isn't true. Capitalism is about private property and voluntary interactions, not about murdering people, because that's a violation of private property. See how that works? But it seems to be inevitable when you you believe in this political authority, that that political authority is going to turn corrupt and work against... You know, it's going to work for their own interests. It's not for your interests. It's not for my interests. They say it is. They claim it is. That's just the line that they tell the rubes. What they're really doing is there to get theirs. So, I mean, there's a reason why Washington, D.C. is one of the most rich districts in the world. And people go in, you know, a millionaire, and they leave like a multi-multi-multi-millionaire. I mean, it's it's a racket. And, you know, I'm sure you got, you got points to make. <laughs> I could talk more, but... We could am I still on the call? Are we still recording? Can you hear me? Yeah. I feel like I've been ranting for a while.
1: We're still going. This is good rant. This is good rant. I don't know if it's really that tied to our movie or movie series that we're talking about. But you know, if if people have seen the Hunger Games, you kinda maybe have an idea of what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, it's 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 the job of the audience now to tie into what we said to (laughs) the Hunger Games. Sure. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Loosely tied. Hey, hey, is it inspiring this? Then it's fine.
1: Yeah, you know, part of hey, Daniel, you oh, go ahead. Of... Well, part of me feels like we're we're acting like Mitch, the Woody Harrelson character, who's famous for being a winner in the games, and nowadays he's pretty much a useless useless drunk. I kind of feel like we're approaching the show that way, even though I'm not drunk, and I don't think you are either.
0: I could be, but I'm not. We should be.
1: We ought be. <laughs> there'd, mm-hmm. there'd at least be a reason for why we're why we're doing so so great on this episode.
0: <laughs> That's right. Anyway, you were about to say something else. Was I? Oh, okay. Um, so you read the books. So this this struck me as a kind of a young adult romance novel that got turned into, you know, there was like actually a pretty good young adult romance novel. And, you know, I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. Maybe I should release it and be good. So I remember at the time when I was reading this, there was some debate, I think, between me and my sister, who was also reading it at the time, as to who Katniss should end up with. And I don't remember what I said, but I'm going to ask you if you gave a shit while you were reading these.
1: Well, she had a hard-on for Gail, who was the strapping, good-looking guy, right? And he, he yeah, was and, kind of
0: into her. Yeah, but Gail kind of got the short shift on the in the in the movies. I thought that in the books, he got a, more screen time. But I could be wrong.
1: Yeah, they had that interaction in the early part where they went out hunting together, and they would do that. And then he went off to fight, but then they kept... Kind of running into each other here and there, and Peta, who she right. did end up with, you know, they had the moment within the the games themselves, and did the eat the berries thing to like you know the Romeo and Juliet style thing. But they were using that as propaganda to make them not killable, right? If if the if the population, if the viewing audience bought into it, that's all they needed to both be able to survive. So they were using right. that. Um, but then they, uh, they turned PETA against her and gave him, you know, the, um, clockwork, clockwork orange, welcome to the jungle style, like psychological trauma to make him hate her. Like they would inflict pain and associate with her. And then he wanted to kill her the moment he saw or heard or thought about her. And yet somehow by the end, he overcomes this.
0: Right. Yeah. One of the themes that comes through in this movie series is that there are no winners in war, there are no winners in in the games, there are only survivors. And at the end of this series, you see that Katniss and PETA are really just survivors. They are, you know, just essentially PTSD'd victims of all the brutality that they've witnessed and experienced. And the great cycle remnants of human beings.
1: The great circle of life can continue
0: on. Yeah, then they have some kids. Life is good, man.
1: Yeah, so what do you think? You got a uh, final summary and review in you? We can start to
0: wind this one down. Yes, let's do that. So The Hunger Games by not Suzanne Collins. Why do I, who, what did Suzanne Collins write? I, she, I don't know why I associate that name with the No, movie. She,
1: she did. She did. You had said someone else's name earlier.
0: Oh, perfect. Yes. I'm learning. You're learning. You're picking it up. So yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting story. I thought it was perfectly good enough to read when I originally did. I uh, remember reading them quite quickly. Um, they're all told first-person perspective through Katniss's point of view, which I don't know if I'd ever read a book like that before. I mean, I'm familiar with, you know, telling first-person perspective stories, but it, it somehow worked throughout the entire series. And I know for the movies, they had to add in some additional scenes that weren't from her POV, which, you know, bettered the story for sure. You got to have some development of the villains, you know, on their own terms, in moments talking to each other and that sort of thing. And I think those scenes work well. Um, Ultimately, for me, this movie series lives or dies on its message. I mean, if it's just a story where you're going to have some fun and whatever, that's fine. Now, you could complain that this is basically a ripoff of Battle Royale. I don't care about that. If you got, you know, you want to take your inspiration from wherever it comes, and if you can make a thing with it, go for it. Um, but the message I think that comes through for me is just the the pointlessness of revolution and the uselessness in the belief in authority to accomplish anything productive. So for me, this is a big time um, recommendation. Um, I don't know if you necessarily need to watch all four movies to get that, but it's, it's a strong series. Um, I'm not a huge Jennifer Lawrence fan for some reason. She does okay, but I just don't think that she's that good of an actor. She's okay. Don't get me wrong. She's fine, but you know, strong enough to carry it, but doesn't, doesn't knock me over. But anyway, as a series whole, I give this a pretty good, strong recommendation. I'll give it a 7.4. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to me. We'll ramble on this episode. Daniel, what did you think? All right, pretty good, pretty good. Um, yeah, I, I
1: think that it's a pretty cohesive story, and the world building is pretty good. The interesting thing regarding the control that they had, and this is going to get Alice Jones territory for just a moment, but they had these high-speed trains connecting the different districts together, and that was a very controlled um, method of travel between these places. And so they were able to compartmentalize and segment keeping them sort of locked down in a control grid. And I think that was one way to extend their power and authority over everyone. And the further away geographically, the worse they could treat those people and then extract those resources, bringing them back towards the capital. And as you were closer to the capital, they treated you a little bit better, so there was less likelihood of revolt. And so you kind of saw that in the different districts. In 13, they claimed to have obliterated as an example against the others to not revolt. So anyway, the uh, the movie series itself seems to tie a lot of ideas together, like gladiatorial combat, uh, conscription, like we were talking about earlier, um, propaganda, media, um, crafting narratives, and using those things to achieve political ends. And so I think that it is a um, it's an eye opening experience from a perspective of what, we, what you and I share, you know, a libertarian perspective in that you can see how this sort of exposes the dark underbelly of how these things, these, these ideas and concepts are used to maintain control over a population. And so for that alone, uh, I would recommend this film series. Uh, but beyond that, it is well done. And uh, we didn't even get into talking about, um, I think the guy's name is uh, B2 or BT. And he's Arnold from uh, Westworld or Bernard the Bernard Arnold uh, from that Westworld series. You've seen that, right?
0: I've seen one episode of the first season, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah, He's BT or TB or whatever his name is.
1: Yeah, the tech wizard. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's a a relatively um, good film series, and I will be very close and give it a 6.5. So do check it out if you've got the means. I highly recommend it. And what do we want to do next as far as a, a movie? I, I, I know we've tossed around the idea of perhaps doing office space. Um, and as we've been talking about gladiatorial-style combat, Gladiator's kind of piquing my interest right now. And in fact, my wife and I are presently watching Spartacus, the um, television series, and that's actually pretty good. It's it pretty cheesy at the beginning. It's this stars series that sort of mixes 300 and softcore porn. Um, but then it starts to develop a, a pretty ever-increasing stakes, uh, episode to episode, where you sort of have to do the one more thing. <laughs> sure. And I believe that's on the, uh, the Netflix, so if you, if you get a chance, you might want to check that out. But what do, you, what do you think about doing Gladiator next week?
0: Yeah, I could probably do Gladiator. Um, I will be traveling, so I don't know if I'll be able to really sit down and watch a movie, but maybe I will. Maybe I will. Is that on the Netflix, do you know?
1: Uh, if not, it is in the voodoo. Okay. Well, then I got no excuses. Yeah, no excuses. All out of excuses. All right. And I think we're about ready to wrap up the show. So speaking of all out of excuses, I wanted to let you know that coming out, or has just come out, is an interview I did with Johnny Rocket of Blast Off with Johnny Rocket and his co-host, Raylene Lightheart. And that can be found at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Blast Off with Johnny Rocket. It's the Friday show, so do check that out. Also, we're going to be doing... uh, a continuing series on Wild Wild Country, wild, wild country with the uh, Liberty Weekly folks. And lately we've been having guest hosts fill in for Pat, who's studying for the bar exam. And so we just completed the third episode, which was with Tony Rakamora of Don't Waste Your Hate. Next week we're going to be doing episode four with the guys from Peaceful Treason. And you can find all of the shows uh, related to this series at libertyweekly.net slash WWC. So that's all the time I think we have for tonight uh, for the Last Nighters. So thank you guys for joining us very much. You can find the show notes and more at lastnighters.com 30. And thank you and good night. And we'll continue a little bit longer on the Actual Anarchy
0: Podcast. Uh, Anything that we left out, Robert? Probably everything, but we rambled on for quite a while. We talked about some things that were kind of inspired by, you know, war and the idea of brutal oppression and the idea of conscription being legitimate and all that kind of thing. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, so about 10% 10 movie and 90% just ranting. So I think that works. Sure. That works pretty well. It's a good
0: ratio. Yeah, one day, one day we should probably get into. I don't know if we have the time or the the expertise. We definitely don't have the expertise. But we should probably maybe talk about like the the Prussian school system and the indoctrination system that happened back around. I think it was Frederick the Great, where you know he was having trouble, you know, having his mercenaries, you know, fight his armies, fight his wars and stuff. And it's hard to get somebody to die for a cause they don't believe in. So you got to indoctrinate the kids, and then they'll they'll readily throw their lives away for some bullshit. So. That'd be interesting talk.
1: Yeah, I wonder if there's a movie that ties into that that would be worth um, basing that discussion on and perhaps doing a, uh, a guest like Jack V. Lloyd of the Voluntarist comic. He's uh, pretty familiar with the um, education system and the history on that, so he might be a good guest for it. Ooh. So I will broach the subject with him and, and see if there's a movie that ties that all together that he'd be willing to come on and talk about. And speaking of things that um, we've been doing and coming on to talk about... Uh, we might have interest in doing the Vietnam series, the Ken Burns series with Trey Weaver of the Subversion Webcast.
0: Cool, yeah, yeah, I'm all, I'm, I'm all for it. That's right. a, it's a long series, but once you get into it, you just gotta watch another episode.
1: Yeah, it gives you a, a lot of
0: stuff that I had not known. Gives you a case
1: of the one Morse?
0: I think so. I mean, I'm kind of one of those military war buff guys, though. I mean, as much as I hate the state and as much as I hate all that crap, it is fascinating to see it all, how it all happened, and to really analyze it and where people go wrong and what they believe, and to see the human condition and what they're willing to die for and what they're willing to murder people for. It's, uh, it is fascinating as, as a student of uh, humanity.
1: Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, perhaps after we're done with the Wild Wild Country series, we can get into that with Trey. And one other announcement I want to just mention to everyone is that we... Uh, as part of the Libertarian Union, we do a monthly uh, talk show together with the other members. We we usually have five or six different members join us, and it's the last Sunday of the month. And it's the State of the Libertarian Union talk show. So that'll be coming out um, uh, right around the time that this episode comes out. So look for that. Uh, we might be running a little bit late on it, perhaps, because some of the guys weren't able to record uh, during the day on Sunday. But look for that at uh, libertarianunion.com. And uh, any last parting words before we get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive, uh, which is available for our Patreon supporters, and you can find out how to, how to support us at uh, actualanarchy.com slash Patreon.
0: Well, you guys are all awesome, and you put up with my wandering rants and our wild diversions from the movies we discuss. So thank you for putting up with us on yet another hot, hot July episode of the Actual Anarchy podcast.
1: All right, yes, and I do also appreciate you guys very much, so thanks for joining us, and we will be coming back to you next week with Gladiator. The uh, Is that Ridley Scott or Tony Scott? It's one of the Scots, I think.
0: Several Scots. It's all the Scots. It's
1: a bunch of Scots. So look for that uh, next week, and uh, you can find the show notes and more for this episode at actualanarchy.com slash uh, 87. Thank you again for joining us, and have a good night. Maximum freedom, everyone.